Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It was a big week. It felt a lot bigger than a 250 in Belgrade. We ended up with the final between the two top seeds. Andre Rublev defeats Novak Djokovic in three sets in a match that went very similarly to the Davidovich-Fakina match from Djokovic's perspective. Big push to win the second, faded completely in the third, and got bageled. And Carlos Alcaraz adds another title as well. He wins two matches on Sunday, uh, one against Alex Dimonor, which went well over three hours' time. And then he sort of mops the floor with Pablo Carreño Busta in the final just a couple of hours later. The Djokovic match being a little bit more interesting. That's going to be the main focus on Monday match analysis and big picture stuff. Uh, but I, I will... Uh, look at Alcaraz a little bit towards the end of the show. However, we begin with French Open power rankings, a week where many of the top players were not in action, but some were. And as a result, we do have some movement in the power rankings. So quickly, I will show you last week's rankings from April 17th with Tsitsipas, Djokovic, Zverev, Sinner, Alcaraz, Rude, Rublev, Schwartzman, Nori, Davidovich, Fikina, and then in the next out category, Ketsmanovich, Herkoc, Fritz, and Opelka. And this week, April 24th, Alcaraz moves up two spots, Rublev moves up one spot, Rude moves down one. Oh, and then I, uh, I guess I didn't upload the updated one, but Schwartzman. Uh, Schwartzman, I think, stays at 8. Uh, Nori stays at 9. Davidovich Fikina stays at 10. Ketsmanovich, Herkoc, and Fritz stay in the next out. But Pablo Carreño Busta replaces Riley Opelka in the next out category. And by the way, if you go all the way back to the 2021 French Open Power Rankings, Carreño Busta was in the next out. He was there. So uh, he is back. Let's see if he can crack the top 10. He went 17-4 and four last year um, on the clay. And uh, another another big result here, making the Barcelona final. So PCB is improving his clay court game. Uh, but just to address the other portions of the power rankings, there will be a lot of debate, I'm sure, about Stefano Tsitsipas maintaining his number one spot. But it's really not so much about him doing anything to hold number one. It's really about Djokovic not doing enough to take it. And Alcaraz obviously is not going to jump from number five. He's not going to jump Djokovic or Tsitsipas. We need to see more from him. And while it was an amazing run, he did pick up one excellent elite level win over Stefano Tsitsipas, in my opinion, the highlight of the week from an entertainment standpoint. Although Djokovic had a bunch of good matches. Uh yeah, he's not Alcaraz with his performance jumps Zverev and Sinner, who are inactive this week. And it was always very close between those three. So, you know, with Carlos beating Tsitsipas and winning a title, that's going to easily leapfrog him over Zverev and Sinner in this week's power rankings. However, you know, Djokovic beating Jera and Ketsmanovic and Hachinov, uh, you know, Ketsmanovic is in the next out. That's a good win, but. You know, you need 
big, good, quali high quality wins in order to really move up the power rankings at that spot. And while Tsitsipas did take a loss, uh, Djokovic, Djokovic's loss was slightly worse, even though it was in the final, and even though the context makes it more understandable. Uh, but all things considered, Tsitsipas and Djokovic both stay put. Uh, Tsitsipas won, Djokovic two. Uh, Rublev moves up one. Um, he jumps over Kasper Ruud. Didn't think there was enough really to put Rublev over Sinner or Zverev. I still feel, I mean, Sinner really with the head-to-head -head in Monte Carlo recently. Uh, Zverev having a very solid head-to-head -head advantage over Rublev. And Andre needs to do more if he wants to jump uh, Zverev after the week that we saw uh, Alex Havitt at uh, Monte Carlo. And I think that covers it. All right, so one last look. April 24th, French Open Power Rankings. There it is. Uh, now, Madrid, we're going to see a lot more movement. You know, Davidovich, Fikina, Nori, players who have kind of struggled in those 9 and 10 spots. So if someone makes a run, uh, they, you know, I'd say they are skating on thin ice back there. Then you have kind of a better category. Uh, but, you know, Schwartzman and Rude and Rublev and Sinner and Zverev, all of that is pretty murky. And let's see if Nadal comes back and plays Madrid. If he comes back and plays Madrid, then even if he suffers an early defeat, he's obviously going to be entered into the power rankings and uh, people are going to lose their spots. So that's that. Let me start with Novak. We'll get to Rublev. But let me just start with Novak. Coming into the week, obviously a big story. After the loss to Davich Fakina, how was Djokovic going to look in Belgrade? Was he going to get what he needed to get as far as getting ready for Roland Garros is concerned? And would he look like he was more fit? And the answer is yes. He not only, and I did a post-match video after the Jera match, he lost the first set in every match he played. And in the case of the Jera and the Ketsmanovic match, he showed much improved fitness. Now, he was doing it to himself over and over and over again, even if the last two sets of the Hatchinoff match were pretty comfortable and, and quick and swift. That's going to catch up with someone. The final was his fourth match in five days. He not only loses the first set again, but he plays this very long and physical and grueling second set. And going into the third set, once again, the gas tank hit empty, just like it did in the Davidovich-Fakina match. Djokovic said that he felt similarly in the third set, you know, and, and it, it looked the same. He had nothing left. He said that uh, maybe it was an illness, uh, the same one that he contended with in Monte Carlo. So maybe there it's not just a fitness thing and it's also an illness thing. But even if it were just fitness, to me, that's understandable. Again, I've made it very clear. I don't expect Djokovic coming off three months three months out of competition with no major on the horizon to come back with no match play and be fit enough uh, or as fit as we know he can be. That's not where the expectation is. So to me, this was a great week. 
He got in those experiences. He he put his body through the three-hour match matches. He put his mind through those long three-set matches, and he did it over and over and over again, and then he ran out of gas. But it's going to make him tougher, and it's going to make him ready for the next time he needs to do that. So, I mean, I just – there's zero concern for me. And I think if you come out of that final – more concerned about his fitness than you came out of Monte Carlo, I think you're crazy because Novak just showed us three matches in a row that his fitness is better than it was last week in Monte Carlo. Illness aside. And four three-setters in five days was too much to ask. But fitness-wise, stamina-wise, positive week for Novak. Step in the right direction. Clear an obvious improvement and that's a positive that's a positive this would have been a bad week if he lost to Jera. he could have lost that match and then obviously that would have been that would have been bad he wouldn't have gotten all of these great match play experiences and you you just cannot simulate it it you cannot simulate it mentally or physically so really good week for Djokovic making the final let's get to rublev third title of 2022 He's 3-0 in finals. He is now 23-5 on the season. That is back to the pace that we saw in 2020. In 2020, Rublev went 5-0 in finals, and he won 80% of his matches. Last year, his win percentage dipped to 70%. And even though he rose in the rankings because people in front of him went down, he really didn't get better last year. He got worse. And now we are seeing him back to where he was in 2020 from a result standpoint. 23-5, and five, that's an 82% win percentage if you are curious. And uh, we see Andre right now with a lot of confidence and playing at a level from the baseline that is really, really difficult for anybody to keep up with. On clay, you know, Rublev's never been a guy who I've had very strong opinions about What's going to be good surfaces for him? What's going to be bad surfaces for him? He hasn't really been that guy. However, you know, the more I think about it, the more you can convince me, and there are arguments against this, mostly the fact that he does have a damaging first serve. Uh, he does have some, some, you know, potential stamina issues. You know, not, he doesn't have below average endurance, but it's not, you know, there are some players who I think can wear him down physically. There's no doubt about that. We saw that a lot last year. That aside, there are some reasons where you could say that Rublev's best surface can be clay. It's not completely out of, uh, out of the question. And I, I didn't look at the stats, but I'll pull them up right now. Uh, let me just look at his tour-level splits real quick. Uh, Hardcourt is... Wow, 48 and 41 for his career, 54% win percentage. Clay is 82 and 32, 72% win percentage. That's not even close. I did not expect to see that. You are watching my live reaction to Rublev's tour level splits on Clay being that far superior to hardcourt. Okay, well, here's what I was going to get into. There's a couple of things here. First of all, the forehand is an incredible clay weapon. It's a better weapon on clay than it is on other surfaces. It's heavy enough that he can keep an advantage and finish from the baseline. 
And that's really important. We know that. Power is really important on clay. It takes a little bit of extra power to to generate enough pace um, and to do damage from the baseline on clay. It takes a little extra. Not only is it heavy enough, it is consistent enough where he can play those extra balls without committing errors. That's also extremely necessary on clay because, you know, the rallies are going to be long. The shots are going to be neutralized. Players are going to be able to defend. And you have to be able to do it over and over and over and over again without missing. You have to be able to sustain aggression. And that's the modern forehand that embodies all of the great clay court players of this generation from a Rafael Nadal um, to a Dominic team to a Matteo Berrettini, to a Stefano Tsitsipas, to a Casper Ruud. That is your common thread with players who, and I'm talking about players, not just players who are good on clay. I'm talking players who are better on clay than they are on other surfaces. That's what I'm talking about. A lot of these guys, it's about the forehand and the weapon that that forehand is. The fact that they can sustain aggression on it and they can hit heavy and attacking forehands repeatedly without missing. And that's about that's about you know the the weapon that Rublev has built with his racket speed and his weight of shot and his margin and his precision. My only critique of his performance today is mental. I thought that he got a little bit uh, too frustrated and stressed. And I think it hurt his performance at times in the second set. I think it could have hurt his performance in the third set had he lost. But uh, that's it. Now, another reason why he might be better on clay than any other surfaces is because of his kick serve. And Rublev being able to defend his kick serve. And there's nothing that's been more important for Andre Rublev's season in 2022 than the success of his second serve. In... Rublev's last two losses against Nick Kyrgios and against Yannick Sinner, his second serve has been absolutely punished. Against Marin Cilic, his serve and his second serve in particular was absolutely punished. Against Taylor Fritz, he won under 50% of his second serve points. I think throughout this season, it's been very clear that Rublev Rublev's game has been clicking, and he has been bringing his A game, his best stuff to the court, pretty much every match. But there have been times where the the second serve has sabotaged that in a huge way. He won less than 35% of his second serve points against Kyrgios and Sinner. Um, and against Djokovic today, he won... Um, in set two, it was not good. But uh, 51% for the match. Now, in his previous round, 83% against Fanini and 79% against, I'm forgetting who he played in the quarterfinal, 79% um, against Taro Daniel. So obviously a drop down in competition there compared to the players who are talking about Rublev beating, but uh, still super high numbers. He protected his second serve this week. 
All throughout the week, he protected his second serve. That is going to make the difference for Andre Rublev. And he did it against Djokovic. If Novak was going to win this match, he was going to do what he did in the second set, which is win a high percentage of his second serve points. But I don't think in the second set, I don't think that Djokovic was really punishing that second serve to the extent that that 35% number would suggest. I thought he was was winning a lot of rallies. Um, you know, nonetheless, uh, there was a point in the second set where Djokovic started to figure out the second serve return, but it certainly wasn't consistent. And we got a lot of this. I'm going go to the, go to the tape here. Um, we got a lot of Rublev's kick serve, which is spinny and slow. And he actually gets a lot of height on it. Uh, and he gets a lot of bounce off the clay. And we got a lot of this from Djokovic. Over the shoulder, kind of reaching, far away from his body, bad contact point. This was on set point in the second set. And the ball lands middle, and Rublev hits a forehand winner here. Let's take a look at another. This is the contact point. It's uncomfortable here for Novak. It's shoulder level, and he has left his feet to make contact with the ball. And now let's show another. There's the ball bouncing. And look at this. This just is not a comfortable comp contact. This is at the eye level, potentially even over the head of Novak Djokovic standing on the baseline. And that tells you that he either needed to move up or he needed potentially to move back which is what he did, but I didn't like that. Uh, you know, it was fine. I think he did win a lot of points that way, but Djokovic moving back is not as effective as a lot of other players moving back. Sinner uh, moved back on a lot of the second serve points in Monte Carlo. Um, Tsitsipas would do that. You know, Team or, or Nadal would certainly do that. They hit such a heavy ball, heavier than Djokovic, that they can push Rublev back off of that return. I don't think Djokovic can do that as effectively. I would have loved to Novak to potentially move up here and see what happened, um, see what would have happened. However, I understand that it's difficult for him on clay. And he actually was talking about this just last week. He was talking about the return of serve on clay and how he can't be quite as aggressive on the return on clay. Uh, he can't rush opponents as much. And if he doesn't rush opponents and he stands in, well, then he's not in good defensive position. So we can go back. Uh, we can go back a couple of frames here to this. And Djokovic does step inside the baseline here. This return has to be great. He's two feet inside the baseline and he's outside the sideline. If this return does not put Rublev under pressure, then Djokovic is in huge trouble because he's not going to be, he's in terrible defensive position here. He's still inside the baseline, uh, and he's having to try to get to the middle. He's not going to get there in time, and there's tons of court for Rublev to hit into. So, Djokovic on a, on a grass court, on a quick hard court, he's going to move in. That second serve that Rublev hits, it's not going to bounce as high. It's going to stay in the strike zone, and when Djokovic hits a hard return deep middle most likely rublev is going to be rushed in a big way it's going to be difficult for him to reply in a in a way that does not surrender either a miss 
or an attackable ball for Djokovic. That's what we've grown so accustomed to seeing. On a clay court, the whole thing is complicated. I think Djokovic does not like that kick serve to the backhand uh, when the ball bounces up very high. I think it's been a big problem in the Pass matchup for him. I think it's been a big problem in the Dominic team matchup for him. He does not like that backhand return when it gets above the shoulders. And Rublev was able to do that to him here. And he uh, his second serve return is not quite as potent on clay. It can be. And, you know, I thought in the second set, he timed it a little bit better. He connected on some and it was better. But, you know, it was not good, not good enough at all in the first set. And uh, it went away again completely in the third set where he had an opportunity here to break back if he had more energy, of course. There were bigger problems. He did completely run out of gas. But, you know, 15-all, second serve. 30-15, second serve. I mean, you win one of those points and you can get back to, if you get the break here, you're back to 1-2 in the third set. So that was a big deal, both for Rublev and for Djokovic. Uh, the second serve was uh, protected by Andre here with that slow kicker to the backhand. It, it was it was somewhat effective. And if Djokovic wants to beat Rublev, he wants to turn that into a liability for Andre. He wants to take second serve returns and be offensive off of them, in my opinion. And that's how you beat Rublev. Because he's so strong in so many aspects of his baseline game. You want to make him defend. And you have an opportunity to make Rublev defend off of Rublev's slow second serve. By far the slowest second serve in the top 10. You have the opportunity to make him pay for that. On clay, it's just a little bit tougher. And Djokovic couldn't get it done there. All right. uh, I do want to talk about Djokovic's tactical haze in this match. I thought that there were some issues for him. I have, a, I have plenty of critiques beyond the fatigue. Now, keep in mind, by the way, uh, one thing to consider is that Djokovic had chances to win this second set without going to the tiebreak. And you wonder, if you get to the second set quicker, does he have enough gas to play that third set? If he wins that second set 6-4, and you know they played a long game at 5-all, I think they played a, another long game at 5-6, uh, then they played a tiebreak, um, yeah, I mean, all these games were going to deuce. 4-5 uh, was an absolute marathon. Let's say Djokovic converts his first set point, which was... Um, I don't know. I think it was after, like, the second deuce uh, at 4-5. Let's say he converts that. He probably saves himself close to 30 minutes from there. So that could have completely changed the match if Djokovic was able to uh, break serve um, at 4-5. And by the way, this was the portion of the match. This was the only part of the match that Djokovic started returning the second serve well. Uh, was in the, at this 4-5 game, and then again at this 5-6 game a little bit, a couple times. Um, yeah. Also, he, he had a good return at Love 1 in the tiebreak. Anyway, um yeah, so so one thing to keep in mind is if he finished the match, if he finished off that second set, I think he had a chance, a much better chance. I thought that Djokovic was too 
too lazy going into Rublev's forehand at times. Lazy mentally, uh, lazy tactically. Going into Rublev's forehand without a purpose. Going into Rublev's forehand from neutral without any reason. And that's very uncharacteristic for Novak. You do not often see him do that and make those kinds of mistakes. Against Rublev, just like Tsitsipas, talk about this all the time, you want to go into the forehand hard. You want to make sure that when they hit forehands, they are on the run. And then it opens up the court on the ad side for you to play their backhand. Djokovic is usually a master of that pattern. So good. But in this case, I thought Djokovic was changing direction on his backhand all the time for no reason whatsoever. Without enough behind it to really put Rublev under pressure. And maybe that's because, look, Rublev's backhand, it's not just going to miss for no reason. And a lot of players have beaten Rublev from neutral by being willing to dig in and grind him down physically by keeping the ball on the backhand and extending the rallies from there. Rublev's backhand, if it's on, it's not just going to miss, but it's not going to really hurt you as much as the forehand is. Especially if you're ready for him to go down the line, which he's going to on the backhand. Um, but like, wait, I want to make sure I, I have this right. Oh no, that that's the drop shot. Hold on, hold on. That's that's the next clip. Um, let me show you this. Let me show you this. Routine backhand trade cross court by Rublev. Djokovic is behind the baseline. This is a trade for for Novak. There's nothing attackable about this ball. Djokovic changes down the line. He gives Rublev a forehand, and Rublev now moves to his right and crushes this forehand down the line. And now Djokovic is open stance, moving backwards, having to neutralize, and he misses wide, having to defend. Look, he shouldn't have missed that backhand, Novak. It's an uncharacteristic backhand for him to miss. By the way, this is at the 4-5 game, at deuce 4-5. And the reason I went on that tangent uh, when I did was because I knew I was going to show you a clip from that game. Um, why why does Djokovic go line here? So I don't think that Novak feared the forehand enough. And I don't think he was tactically focused enough in this match at really making Rublev hit backhands and only going to the forehand with purpose, which is uncharacteristic. I would also think that Djokovic's drop shot would be a big factor in his ability to beat Andre Rublev. I thought that he didn't use it as much as he could have, and when he used it, he used it wrong. On a couple of occasions, two or three, Djokovic went to his favorite drop shot backhand down the line, and Rublev got to it um, and slid into it with a forehand grip. There is no way that with that grip, he can go down the line. He's going to hit with a low contact point, and he's right on top of the net. You have to go over the low part of the net there with more court to hit into, cross court. 
it's the only way you're executing that shot unless you have to hit it really soft if you go line. And it's just, nobody goes line. Nobody goes line here with the forehand grip when they get to the drop shot. It's very rare. And Rublev didn't do it either time. And look at Djokovic uh, positionally. He's on his backhand side. Rublev hits this for a winner. It's very strange to me that Novak didn't anticipate that. The drop shots should go to Rublev's backhand side. Andre is not that good with a continental grip. His feel isn't good. His touch isn't good. We know that. So make him hit a continental grip by going to the backhand. He's probably going to have to take a hand off of it. Drop shot to that side and go from there. And that's a great play, one that he should be using frequently. Djokovic used the drop shot sparingly, and then sometimes when he used it, he didn't use it well. So I think there's meat on the bone. There's attention to detail. The next time Djokovic plays Rublev, there's there's things that he can do much better. I also thought that he got a little bit passive on big points, and it goes back to making Rublev defend and, you know, that's how you are going to beat him. Uh, Djokovic, against all opponents, could have served better and, you know, hit his first serve in a way that was setting up more plus one, you know, easy serve plus one play. That was a theme throughout the week. It was true again. That's not matchup specific to Rublev, but that was true again in the first set here. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. But ultimately... Uh, I thought it was an excellent performance from Andre Rublev. He continues to be really good. And uh, he's a tough out, uh, a very, very tough out if you are not going to find a way to punish his second serve, to make him defend frequently, to keep it away from his forehand, to put him in uncomfortable positions at the net. If you're not able to do those things and you are playing a lot of neutral rallies with him and he's getting forehands to hit, he is uh, he's going to make mincemeat out of the tennis ball, and he's going to be really difficult to beat. So, again, um, good stuff from Rublev. Congrats to him. Let's go over to Barcelona now. Carlos Alcaraz, for the second time this season, has to play two matches in a day deep at a clay court event, and he gets it done. He did it in Rio. We talked about that. And I talked about how impressive he is physically after Rio and how how much that bodes well for his ability to make it through the season, for his ability to play long, best of five set matches, and you know, just how rare it is for an 18-year-old to be able to withstand that much tennis. In Rio, it was the quarter and the semi. Today on Sunday, it was the semi and the final. He beats Dimonor. 6-4 in the third set. Absolute marathon match. It was like three and a half hours. And then he comes back and beats Karenia Busta. So it's the second time he did that. But uh, against Dimonor, uh, he had the most incredible match point save. And by the way, shout out to Alex Dimonor, who uh, is um, incredible in his own right. For for what he's done, and I'm, I'm sorry, I it looks like I didn't load this the image properly, so I have to pull it up. Where the heck is it? Um, sorry about this, guys. 
Here it is. Um, okay. Unbelievable match point save against Demonor. Alcaraz should have lost. There's no question about it. Um, let's just kind of take a look at this. Uh, this is the forehand that Demonor had on match point. Now, I have the serve here as well. This is the return that Alcaraz hit. Sorry, the order got messed up here. But Alcaraz on the full stretch. Good job by Carlos. Good job by Carlos just to get the serve back. But it lands very, very short. This is the forehand that Demonor has. And I don't know what his target is on this forehand. I mean, Alex hits this right through the middle of the court where Alcaraz is coming from off the court. And, you know, the play is obviously either to hit it behind Alcaraz or hit it into the open court. The right play here, based on how Alcaraz anticipated or guessed, would have been to go behind him. But I also would have understood if Demonor hit into the open court. To go middle is bizarre because at this point, Alcaraz is running across the middle of the court. So Demonor goes middle and Alcaraz contorts his body, takes it as a, as a forehand and somehow controls this ball and hits a clean passing shot. I mean, as terrible as this was by Demonor, should have been a put away forehand, no if, ends or buts. Magical, magical shot from Alcaraz. And ends up coming through and winning the match. So just wanted to highlight that. As far as the final is concerned against Carreño Busta. PCB is an awesome player. But when he faces Nadal on clay. When he faces um, the best players in general. He is not able to make them uncomfortable enough. Because he does not possess enough weaponry to do so. It is a testament to Carlos Alcaraz that he took the court against Pablo Carreño Busta and looked, made PCB look like he was an ordinary player because Alcaraz brought guns to a knife fight. Alcaraz's forehand was by far the biggest thing on the court. The second biggest thing on the court, ground strokes, uh, was Alcaraz's backhand. So, I mean, you know, it, it was it was uncompetitive, and um, I, I don't have that much more to say other than that. Uh, Demonor, by the way, encouraging result for him, though. Um, and and if, he, if he continues, maybe one more good result for him... <laughs> And look, it surprised me to say it, but I mean, if he continues, he could get on the French Open power rankings. Who would have thought? Who would have thought Alex Dimonor, who has a losing record for his career on clay at tour level? Uh, yeah, I mean, he'll have to do a lot more. It's just one week. I'm not really sure what happened. Uh, he's really struggled on clay throughout his career, but uh, encouraging, encouraging sign for him. That's for sure. All right. So not going to be any content next week, probably until until the weekend all right so heads up there hope you enjoyed don't forget to subscribe i'll see you next time